Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, The Need for Hope. All right, well, the last time we were together in Revelation, two weeks ago, uh, we kicked off our study of Christ's seven letters to the seven churches. And so we started with his letter to the church of Ephesus, and we saw that the, the need there in Ephesus was the need for passion, for renewed passion for the Lord because they had left their first love. Now we're diving into the second letter, the letter of Jesus to the church at Smyrna, and we're going to find out that this church really needed hope. Now the reason the believers in Smyrna needed hope was because they were going through intense persecution. And so true believers, you need to know this, true believers have experienced persecution since the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost some 2,000 years ago. And by the way, nothing has changed. Persecution is just as bad against Christians today as it's ever been in the last 2,000 years. We don't know that because many of us, you know, don't know that because we live in this bubble, this bubble that's called the United States of America. We live on a level that we are so blessed, we have no clue how our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are living. But I want to encourage you to pray for your brothers and sisters who are undergoing persecution even today. And the way you can do that is you can go to a website, uh, a website called The Voice of the Martyrs. It can be found at persecution.com. You may want to write that down, persecution.com. And once you go to persecution.com, you'll see the Voice of the Martyrs website. And then if you just click on About VOM, you'll see the prayer map. And so we put the prayer map up on the screen for you today. I think this is such an amazing tool, especially for us, us in America uh, to really be praying for those, again, our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. You can later take your cursor as you go to this prayer map, and you can put it over any of those dots where Christians are being persecuted right now, today, and you can get an update from that area of the globe of how you can specifically pray for these Christians who are under intense persecution. For example, this morning, um, I went um, over to Mexico, in southern Mexico, and I clicked on that little dot there, and I, I found out, um, I knew this, but I didn't know it was so bad, I found out that evangelical Christians are being persecuted right now, today, by Catholic syncretists. The word syncretism means an amalgamation of many different weird beliefs into another belief. And so in southern Mexico today, you have Catholics who are synchronists, and they're persecuting evangelical Christians who proclaim that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. They're being persecuted severely. You can get a report um, in Mexico or other parts of the country, and you can most, most importantly pray for the people who are being persecuted, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, very convenient, I was very glad to see that just this week, Fox News had an up-to-date article on Christians who are being persecuted today. I thought, man, isn't that ironic? I'm preaching on this this Sunday. And so let me share with you a little bit from this article, hot off the press, from February the 2nd. It says, in the past year, the persecution of Christians has not only increased, but it's also spread to more corners of the globe. The advocacy group Open Doors USA recently released the latest edition of its annual World Watch List, which ranks countries based on the treatment of their Christian populations. The group said that the increase in incidents considered persecution was alarming and only getting worse. Okay, and so here's one of the leaders of Open Doors. He says, and I quote, it's appalling that Open Doors has to report that persecution has increased again in 2016, and we're still at the worst level of persecution in modern times. 
The spread of persecution has gotten worse, now hitting nearly every continent of the world. Another report says, now listen to this, nearly 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith in 2016. 90,000 Christians killed for their faith, not in the first century, 2016. It goes on um, to say that 600 million were prevented from practicing their faith through intimidation, forced conversions, bodily harm, and even death. It goes on to say that 215 million Christians around the world are facing some degree of persecution. And by the way, that's just the cases that are reported. That number is so much higher because many Christians never tell a soul when they're persecuted. And so when you look at the current map of our world today, you can see where Christians are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. The majority of persecution takes place in a rectangular area of our globe called the 1040 window. If you've heard of the 1040 window, can I just see your hand just for a moment uh, to see it's the same in every service, about 25 uh, or 30%. And so the 1040 window is that area of our globe from 10 degrees north latitude of the equator to about 40 degrees north latitude of, our, uh, of the equator um, that extends from northern Africa through the Middle East um, all the way through Asia, and that is where Christians are being persecuted the most. And so from this map, you can see by the color coding the different levels of persecution um, that Christians are receiving. For example, the countries that are yellow, countries like Colombia, believe it or not, Colombia, Turkey, Indonesia, these countries, Christians are facing sparse persecution. And then you look at the dark orange areas of that map, countries like Mexico and Algeria and China, well, those countries are receiving moderate persecution. And then if you notice the light orange countries um, on, the, on the screen there, they're receiving severe persecution, and that's countries like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and India. And then finally, the dark brown, they need our prayers the most. These people are receiving extreme persecution for their faith in Jesus, and that's countries like Sudan, Syria, Iran, Iraq, of course, we've all heard about the Christians suffering persecution in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. And of course, we know one of the most horrific, violent, brutal groups out there that are persecuting Christians is ISIS. And so, did you guys notice that our country, the United States of America, does not even qualify for sparse persecution? How blessed we are in the good old USA, by the way. How blessed we are. We ought to thank God for that. We ought to thank God for that because our founding fathers and the Constitution that they created and the religious freedoms that we've had for the last 200 plus years is unheard of in the history, if you study a little bit of history, in the history of the world. And so you need to know, though, that living in America does not exempt us from receiving some persecution at some point in our lives, okay? The persecution that we may receive will not be, I guarantee you today at least, will not be on the same level as our brothers and sisters in the 1040 window, okay? We can't even imagine in our little American bubble what they're going through. Um, it's not gonna be at that level yet, but did you know that God's word promises that at some point, you and I will receive some level of persecution at some point in our lives. That's a promise from God, and it can be found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Here it is. Indeed, how many? All. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, there's the promise, be persecuted. By the way, I've never seen that promise of God framed in anyone's living room, on, on anybody's living room wall before. 
but yet is a promise of God anyway. And so if, it's a big if, but if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, at some point, you're gonna be persecuted. Now, this is what I personally believe. I believe that as our country continues to move left, and what I mean by that is that as more and more Christians adopt a relativistic, humanistic, secular worldview, we will absolutely be hated by those people. If you and I choose to follow Christ, and I'm not talking about just saying a little prayer and then nothing changes in your life. I'm not just talking about going to church twice a month, checking off your religious duty, but nothing else changes in your life. That's not Christianity at all in the Bible. I'm talking about if you decide in your heart of hearts to be a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ, if you decide in your heart of hearts to adopt a Christian biblical worldview, if you decide in your heart of hearts that you're gonna live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be hated and you will be persecuted. It shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. And so the believers in the church of Smyrna were hated, and they were persecuted, and they suffered. But before we talk about their suffering, I want to talk about their city, okay? And so what we're going to do, once again, is we're going to put the, the map up, the seven cities that received these seven letters from Jesus himself. Two weeks ago, we studied the letter to Ephesus. Today, we're tackling the shortest of all the letters of Smyrna. By the way, I think it's interesting that it's the shortest letter for people who are suffering. Ladies and gentlemen, if you know someone who is suffering, um, you don't have to say a lot. Just be there for them. Love them. You don't have to go on and on and on and on and on like Job's friends trying to solve all the problems of the world. Just be there. This is the shortest letter to the suffering people. Smyrna. And then the next um, five to six weeks, I say six weeks because Don Stewart's coming, uh, we're gonna study the letter to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and also to the church of Laodicea. So Smyrna was a major seaport city in the Roman province of Asia Minor, located about 35 to 40 miles northwest of, of Ephesus, and in the first century, it was a gorgeous city. Some people even dubbed it the glory of Asia. And so today, the ruins of Smyrna uh, lie underneath the modern city of Izmir, Turkey. And so um, beautiful place still today that you can travel to if you ever go to uh, Turkey and maybe visit Ephesus. And uh, you can go on up 35, 40 miles and visit Izmir and Izmir today has a very busy port here in the 21st century. Well, just like it has a busy port in the 21st century, so 2,000 years ago in the first century, Smyrna also had a very busy port, and one of the main items that it exported was myrrh. Myrrh. I find it very interesting that the ancient Greek word for myrrh is Smyrna. And that leads us to a very interesting illustration. Uh, myrrh, what is myrrh? Myrrh is this gum resin uh, that comes from certain trees around the Arabian Peninsula in Northeast Africa and is used, it's been used for thousands of years for medicine, for perfume, uh, to embalm bodies, uh, incense, okay? And so myrrh, by the way, uh, you guys all know this, uh, was one of the three gifts the wise men gave to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But what I find interesting is the way myrrh is harvested. The way that you get myrrh from these trees that are native to the Arabian Peninsula in Northeast Africa is that you go to the tree and you have to wound the tree. 
And the more you wound the tree repeatedly, you break through the bark into the sapwood, that's when these trees will bleed the gum, the resin of myrrh that has such a beautiful aroma. And so the correlation is this. The believers of Smyrna, the believers in myrrh, were being wounded under persecution. But that wounding was actually a good thing. You say, how in the world can wounding ever be a good thing? Well, here's why. Their wounding was causing the, the, the resin of myrrh, so to speak, to bleed out of their lives and was causing it to be an aroma that was attracting other people to Christ. The wounding, ladies and gentlemen, that they experienced, that, that wounding, it was causing their faith to become deeper, their faith to become stronger. It was causing them to be conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. It was producing a humility in their lives. It was causing them to smell good so that people were attracted to Jesus Christ. And so Oswald Chambers, the author of My Utmost for His Highest, once said this, and I quote, before God can use a man greatly, he must wound him deeply. I'm glad two people said amen to that. Before God can use a man or a woman greatly, he must wound them deeply. I wonder, would you be willing to be wounded if that meant that God could use you in a greater measure in the future? Would you be willing to be wounded? And maybe it's not persecution, maybe it's wounded by some other pain in life. Would you be willing to go through that? Are you so surrendered to Christ that you would be willing to endure that so that you, your faith could be deepened, so that you could become more like Jesus Christ, so that your life can give an aroma that would attract other people to Jesus? Somebody asked me between first and second services, when were you wounded? And immediately two things popped into my head, which I will not share in this service. But see, God wounds us. He allows us to be wounded. Paul is a great example of this. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, some kind of physical ailment. We don't know what it was. Maybe bad eyesight, we don't know. And he asked God three times, Lord, remove this. Does anybody believe Paul was a man of faith, yes or no? Of course he was a man of faith. And in faith, he asked Jesus, take away this sickness. In faith, he asked Jesus, take away this ailment. Three times, and all three times, God said, no. Why, why God? He said to Paul, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I'm so grateful today that Paul allowed, him, allowed himself to be wounded all the way through the bark to the sapwood so that he bled the aroma of myrrh that attracted billions of Christians over the last 2,000 years to Jesus Christ. Yes, we should rejoice, uh, rejoice and thank God for that. You see, what I'm doing here is I'm teaching you biblical Christianity, not some sort of superficial Christianity that you may get on TV. And so... Verse eight, we start the letter. And to the angel or the messenger of the church of Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The words of the first and the last. Jesus starts his letter to these suffering people by sharing part of his identity. The first and the last, that's who I am. And by the way, does that sound familiar to anybody? You see, if you're reading through your Bible, and I hope you are, whether it takes you a year, two years, three years, I hope you're systematically reading through the scriptures. If you're doing that, if you have that discipline in your life, then I know that you've read through Isaiah once, twice, three, four times in your life. And if you've read Isaiah, then this title that Jesus gives himself sounds very familiar. Check out Isaiah 44, verse six. God, you say, which God? The only God. 
the true God, Yahweh God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only God who's ever existed. That God said in Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Well, later on, guess what? Jesus in the New Testament said, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. He absolutely did both there and in many other places in the New Testament. The question that you have to answer is have you put your trust in the true Jesus of the Bible, not the made-up Jesus of the cults? Have you put your trust in the, in the true Jesus of the Bible and not the fabricated Jesus of the false religions? Who's the true Jesus of the Bible? He's the first and the last, the exact same God as the God of the Old Testament. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this is orthodox Christianity for the last 2,000 years. We believe in one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's Christianity, and that is our God. And so Jesus was not created. He's not an elevated being. He is the God-man, 100% God, 100% Man, it's called the incarnation. And so, that Jesus, the eternal sovereign son, wanted to give hope to these persecuted believers of Smyrna, these people who were suffering. And so he told them, I'm the first and the last, and I'm the one who died and came back to life, because there's the hope right there. I died, and guess what? I came back to life. Okay, so you believers in Smyrna, you're suffering, you're persecuted. Some of you are actually going to be martyred and you're going to die because of your faith in me. Good news. Cheer up. I know exactly what you're going through. I was persecuted. I was martyred. And guess what? I came back to life. And because I live, you're going to live also. See, that's the message of Jesus to these suffering people. In other words, it's not just about this life. It's about the next life. It's not just about, this is what you need to teach your kids. It's not just about this world. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. It's about the next world, the life that goes on and on and on and on forever. So Jesus gave these believers hope. It's what they needed. And you'll have hope too when you begin to focus on the next life. And so look at verse nine now. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And so the church of Smyrna was going through three things here, tribulation, poverty, and slander. Now, I also find it very interesting that there's two out of seven churches that never received a correction or rebuke from Jesus. The church of Smyrna, and then my favorite church, I can't wait till we get there, the church of Philadelphia. Those two churches, the other five, they were corrected, they were rebuked. Not Smyrna, not Philadelphia. And so this church, to whom Jesus had nothing but good things to say, did you notice they're going through tribulation, poverty, and slander? Some churches are going through tribulation. They're going through poverty. They're going through slander. And they think there must be something wrong in the church. We must be doing something wrong. The believers in Smyrna weren't doing anything wrong. The problem was they lived in the world, and the world hated them. And so, let's break down these three words. The word tribulation is, means pressing or crushing. I want you to think about a, a heavy stone being rolled over a cluster of grapes to extract the juice, okay? Imagine if you were a grape and the stone's coming down. Anybody ever feel like that? And now you get an idea of what tribulation means here 
uh, this crushing, this pressing. And so why were the believers in Smyrna under the, 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 the pressing of persecution? It's the main reason why, when you study it historically, is because they refused to engage in emperor worship. And so at the end of the first century, you had a madman who was the Caesar. His name was, um, his name was Diocletian. Make sure I have that right. No, Domitian. Domitian was the, the Caesar at the end of the first century. And so under Domitian, it was required that you worship the emperor. I mean, what an ego, right? And by the way, back in, I think, AD 25 or AD 26, Smyrna was chosen from other cities in the Roman province of Asia to actually build a temple to Caesar Tiberius back in 25 AD, which was still there in AD 95, where we are in our Bibles today. And so there was no question, it was required, if you lived in the Roman Empire, you had to engage in emperor worship. Okay, so what did that mean exactly? That meant that you had to appear once a year before a statue of Caesar. In Smyrna, they just go down to that temple that was built in 25. In other cities, you had, maybe it was a bust of Caesar or a statue. Nonetheless, once a year, you had to appear before that statue of Caesar uh, with a pinch of incense, and you had to burn that before that statue, and you had to say, Caesar is Lord. And then, what did they do? The Roman guard there would give you a certificate that would get you through another year. You did your religious duty. Can you imagine if we had to worship our president? I'll stop right there. <laughs> Whew, so many thoughts are flying right now. But, but just know, just know that someday in the tribulation, tribulation saints will be under the pressure to worship the Antichrist. And so can you imagine, go, go back to the first century, put yourself in the sandals of these believers in Smyrna. The day is coming, they know. They're gonna be required to show up at the, the, the temple of Caesar with their little pinch of incense. And you know that any true born-again Christian Blood-bought, who has the Holy Spirit living inside, they're not gonna say Caesar is Lord, but they were under that pressure to do so. And so because many of them said, no way, I'll never say that, Jesus is Lord, they were sentenced to death. And I could go on and on about the way Christians were killed in the first and second centuries, fed to the lions, wrapped up in animal skins and attacked by wild beasts, impaled on poles, and burned, covered in pitch, and burned, all for the crime of being a follower of Jesus Christ. They were in tribulation, and they were in poverty. Now, I want, I want to be very careful here that everybody sees this, okay? So go back to verse 9, please. He says, I know your tribulation and your, what's the word? Poverty. They were Christians, and they were in poverty, black and white right in the word of God. Now, why were they in poverty? They were in poverty because the city was overrun by paganism. Everywhere you look, there was another statue. Everywhere you look, there was another God, little g. Um, paganism everywhere, and that was a big part of their e economy. And so it's hard for us to imagine in America with all of our religious freedoms that we have, at least today that we have, uh, but back then, um, life revolved around the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses. And so there was emperor worship, but they were syncretists, and so it wasn't just worship Caesar, it was also worship these different gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon, and there was temples and statues and altars, like I said, all over the Roman Empire and in the city of Smyrna. And so the economy was based in large part on this idolatry, Okay, you had silversmiths, and they would make thousands and thousands of these little figurines of the different gods and goddesses. You had merchants who sold these figurines. You had pagan priests who ran the various temples around town. You had prostitutes who sold their bodies to men at the temple of whatever pagan god as an act of temple worship. 
That was the society they lived in. And then, of course, you had officials that planned all the local festivities and parades for these Greek god, gods and goddesses, okay? And so these businesses had their own guilds, and these guilds had a lot of power in the city. And now there you are, you're a Christian in Smyrna at the end of the first century, and you are not because you're born again. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. There's no way you're getting involved in idolatry, right? I mean, if you lived back then, would you, would you go on the parade for whatever Greek god or goddess? Yes or no? No, we don't do that. Jesus is our God. And so they would not get involved. Therefore, they were excluded from the guilds. They were fired from their jobs, and therefore, they couldn't work, and they were poor. Now, I don't know who this is for today, but maybe you're here today, and the question the Lord is asking you is, will you be faithful to me at work? Will you take a stand for righteousness at work, even though it may cost you that promotion even though it may cost you your job? Will you be a man or a woman of integrity? Will you refuse to do the sin that your boss is asking you to do? Are you willing to take that stand even though it might cost you your paycheck? I hope you're willing to take that kind of stand. And so Jesus said in verse nine, please look at it, I know your poverty. Now, if you're with me, can you say amen here? Amen. Here's what Jesus did not say in verse 9. He did not say, I know your poverty, but if you just had enough faith, then I would come through for you and make you rich. Does anybody see that in verse 9? Because it's not there. Jesus said, I know your poverty, I can relate. Jesus also once said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus knew what it meant to be poor. Paul knew what it meant to be poor at times and hungry and without. And Paul said, I'm content in whatever state that I'm in. And so to these poor Christians, Jesus called them rich. Did you see that in verse nine? I know your tribulation and your poverty. Here it is. But you are what? Rich. And no doubt some people in the church of Smyrna heard the pastor, the messenger, read this scroll. And they said, rich? Anybody rich in the house? And then the messenger would say, the pastor would say, listen, you're rich in what matters. You may not be rich right now in, in material things, but you're rich in immaterial things. You're rich in faith and in hope and in love, things that you can't put a price tag on. That's where we're rich, ladies and gentlemen. And so... If you, if you wanna write down a verse that, that contradicts the heart of the prosperity gospel, and I, I believe in prosperity, okay, as in Psalm 1, 1 through 3 that I, I quoted in my prayer, that when you walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but your delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law you meditate day and night, God says, I will prosper you. But it's his definition of prosperity, not the guy on TV it's definition of prosperity. It's not always material things. It is always immaterial things. Sometimes material things, but definitely immaterial things. That's true prosperity according to the word of God. And so if you want a, a verse that cuts at the heart of the false prosperity gospel, here it is, James 2, 5. James 2, 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Has not God chosen the poor of this world? Right now, um, in Haiti, my wife is there, my daughter is there, Matt Missiano, 
um, is there, uh, Jose Rosario and, and five or six other people, they're there right now. They've been part of a church service that's probably lasting about three or four hours. Okay, we have three services that go about four hours. They have one that goes three or four hours. And they don't have AC. And these people, I wish you would go down there and see it firsthand. They are in abject poverty. But you know what? They're rich in faith. They have a deepness, a relationship with Jesus that I envy when I'm around some of these people when I go down to Haiti. Hey, God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. And so maybe you're here today and God's blessed you with an abundance of wealth. Praise God for that. Nothing wrong with being wealthy. Abraham was a wealthy man and he is the father of faith. Nothing wrong with being wealthy. But here's the, uh, here's the other side of that equation. That if you're here today and God hasn't made you wealthy, it's not because of your lack of faith. It's not. Stop believing the guy on TV and start reading the Bible. Because these guys on TV have a way to pick in different verses out of the Bible, out of their context, and teaching something that sounds tickling to the ears and may draw a crowd, but it's not true to the whole counsel of God. There are rich people who love and serve Jesus Christ, and there are poor people who love and serve Jesus Christ just as much. That's what the Bible says. And so the church in Smyrna was going through tribulation. They were going through poverty, and they were going through slander. Did you see that? Also in verse 9, he said, the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And so what's going on here? Well, no doubt there are Jews in Smyrna at the end of the first century. And some of their friends, some of their family members, their loved ones, are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, and they're trusting in Jesus, and they're leaving the synagogue, and they're going down to the church of Smyrna. And these, some of these Jews in the synagogue of Smyrna are so upset, they began to make plans against Christians and against, and by the way, Jew, Gentile, Christians, they begin to make plans against Christ's church, and because they come against Christ's church, Jesus calls this particular synagogue at the end of the first century in Smyrna a synagogue of Satan. That's the plain sense of the scripture. Verse 10, do not fear, this verse is for some of you, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days, not 11, not 12, not 13, 10 days you will have tribulation. Here's what you need to know. The devil is on a leash, and a sovereign God will not allow the devil to do anything more than he wills. What does that mean? That means that the devil has to get permission from a sovereign God before he can touch your life. Job, chapters one through three. So not 11, not 12, not 13 days, 10 days, a sovereign God, for whatever reason, is allowing the devil to throw some of them into prison um, to have uh, tribulation so that they can be tested Right, Gold is tested in fire to see if it's genuine or not. And then at the end of verse 10, here's Jesus' encouraging words. Be faithful. Be faithful when it gets grueling. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so your next point is that Jesus told the believers in Smyrna not to fear because he is sovereign. He said, the devil is about to do this to you. Okay, what does that mean? That means that Jesus could see into the future. 
Now follow me here. He also said he's gonna persecute you for 10 days, not 11, 12, or 13. Okay, what does that mean? That means the devil's on a leash. Jesus controls the future, okay? When you can see into the future and when you can control the future, those are attributes of a sovereign God. And because Jesus is God and because Jesus is sovereign, he can say to the believers, don't be afraid. I'm in control. You're gonna suffer. It's gonna be all right. I'm gonna be with you. And so do you see the attributes of sovereignty there? Jesus sees into the future and he controls the future. What does that mean for you and I? That means that Jesus can see your future. Just like you right now can look up and see this platform, these screens or whatever, Jesus sees your tomorrow, your next week, your next month, your next year, 10 years from now if he tarries. He sees it. And not only does he see it, He's in control. He's sovereign. He's in control. I heard somebody once say, nothing is going to happen to you unless it first passes through a nail-scarred hand. Some of you guys got to get this this afternoon. Okay, because you're so afraid of the future. You're so afraid of, of suffering. You're so afraid of, of something that might happen to you. And oh no, what if it happens? Stop. Who's your God? What is his name? Help me out. Go. Jesus, Jesus is sovereign, yes or no? Help me out. Yes, he sees your future, he controls your future. He's got it under control. Nothing is gonna happen to you unless it first passes through a nail-scarred hand. And maybe the devil will let, uh, maybe Jesus will let the devil touch your life for one, two, three days or whatever. But you need to know that the devil's on a leash. You need to know that Jesus is over the devil. You need to know that the devil was created and Jesus was, is uncreated. The devil is just an angel. Jesus is God Almighty and you're his child and nothing's gonna happen to you outside of his will. <laughs> nothing is gonna happen to you outside of his will. And I'll say it one last time. Nothing is gonna happen to you outside of his will. All you have to do is stay faithful. And so the one with a nail-scarred hand decided in his sovereignty that some of these saints in Smyrna are gonna be martyred. They're gonna die for their faith. But that's okay, because they're gonna receive a crown of life. That was his promise at the end of verse 10. I will give you the crown of life. What's the crown of life? James 1.12, if you're taking notes. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the, what? Which God has promised to those who love him. And so we all know salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we know that what we do in the kingdom age, our responsibilities, whether we oversee five cities, ten cities, whether we receive crowns or don't receive crowns, is all based on our faithfulness to Jesus in this life. And so those who are faithful under trials are gonna receive the crown of life at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And so the most famous believer from Smyrna who was martyred for his faith was a guy named Polycarp. And so Polycarp lived from the middle of the first century to the middle of the second century. He um, was mentored by the, the author of Revelation, John, personal mentoring from John. He became eventually the bishop of Smyrna, and he's considered one of the apostolic fathers. In 155 AD, the Romans arrested Polycarp for the crime of being a follower of Jesus. And they sentenced him to be burned at the stake. All Polycarp had to do was take that little pinch of incense and burn it and say, Caesar is Lord, and he could escape the flames. And they gave him an opportunity to recant his faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what Polycarp said, and I quote, 155 AD, 86 years I have served Christ and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they burned him at the stake. But guess what? Polycarp immediately went into the presence of Jesus Christ and he received the crown 
of life because he was faithful all the way to death. Look at verse 11. Here's the last verse. Stay with me all the way to the end, okay? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural, okay, that's our church too. The one who conquers, the word conquer can also be translated overcomes. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, and so who is the one who overcomes biblically? First John 5, 4 gives you the answer. Now stay with me here, get this, okay? This is Christianity 101 here. Everyone who has been, what's the next three words? There it is. Overcomes the world. We're talking about true regeneration. We're talking about spiritual birth here. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So how do we overcome the world? We have to be born of God. How are we born of God? Saints be praying because there's some people here today who may not know the answer to that question. How are we born of God? John 1, 12 and 13 tells us, but as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe, trust in his name. And then it goes on in verse 13 to say this, who were born not of blood, not of the flesh, nor the will of man, but were born of God. How are we born of God? We put our faith, our trust in the true Jesus of the Bible. We receive him as our Savior and Lord, and that's when we're born of God. So here's your last point. He who is born twice will die once, but he who is born once will die twice. I was born in November of 1966. Some of you are doing math in your head. I'll save you the time. I'm, I'm 50, okay? Don't do all the math. I was born in November of 1966, physically. I was born again in May of 1984. In 1966, I was born for the first time. In 1984, I was born the second time. In 1966, I was born physically. In 1984, I was born spiritually. What happened in 1984? I stopped trusting in Mike Wiggins to save Mike Wiggins, and I started trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save me. I received him as my savior. I received him as my Lord. And I was born again. And so because I have been born twice, I will only die once. Okay? But the person who's only been born once, who's only had a physical birth, but never a spiritual birth, that guy, that gal is gonna die twice. At some point, because 10 out of 10 of us don't make it off this earth alive, right? At some point, that guy, that girl, they're gonna breathe their last breath and they're gonna die physically and their soul is going to descend like the rich man in Luke 16 into Hades. But then one day on the last day, judgment day, their body will be raised and they will stand before the great white throne judgment. They will be judged and they will literally, according to Revelation 20, be cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. They were only born once, physically, never born again spiritually. Therefore, they died twice. And they, did, they were not eradicated. They will not be eradicated in the lake of fire because our souls are immortal. And so what is spiritual death? It's eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. I exhort you, I plead with you, flee. Flee from the wrath of God by trusting, receiving the only way to be saved, and that is Jesus Christ 
as your Savior and Lord. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. Nothing's more important than being born again. One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.